Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. It's a hot summer day, 1968, at my family's home in Washington, D.C. My friends are abuzz. They just found out there's a lady out back who's going to hold a Bible school class, and there are going to be cookies. At four years old, I don't know what a Bible is, but we all know if there are cookies, we want in on this. I ask my somewhat harried, completely Jewish mother if I can go to Bible school in the alley, and she concedes so quickly I almost think something is wrong. In retrospect, any relief from having me underfoot that day was okay with her, even a Bible school with a cookie-toting stranger. We rush out to the alley, into the vacant lot behind my house, and sit down on mats among weeds with other kids from the neighborhood. The lady pours punch into a small waxen paper cup for each of us and doles out the promised cookies. Then she sits down upon a box and begins to read us a story from a book, turning the pages and showing us pictures. Now, I love stories, and reading with my mom is always the highlight of my day. Mom reads me inventive tales of things that can't possibly be true, but are fun to imagine. Things like dogs driving cars, how an improbable crowd of animals in a winter forest use a lost mitten as a makeshift sleeping bag. And our favorite, the one with the old lady bunny in the rocking chair whispering, hush. But this time, the story is very different. What becomes clear to me from the lady is this utterly fantastic story is supposed to be completely true. Almost instantly in my bones, I know a few things for sure. Number one, the cookies were a ploy, and now that I've eaten them, I can't leave. Number two, it's very, very important to the lady that I believe this story is true. Number three, I know this story can't possibly be true, at least not the way she's telling it. And number four, through believing this story, She wants to control me. Though I don't understand everything, I instinctively know I've encountered something very, very big for the first time, and that I shouldn't tell anyone what I really think, because if I do, there might be big trouble. I quietly come home, and I don't talk about what happened, but that incident has lived with me ever since. I think it's the first time I remember encountering the holy. Surely not in the fantastic biblical tale the lady told us, but in the innate divine response within me. That was the moment when I discovered the power of my self-determination. From that time forward, I wasn't the same boy who accepted everything laid before him. I began to examine everything for myself, and it was I and I alone who would determine what to believe 
and what I would do with my life. This principle of self-determination has been a bedrock of my existence, but it hasn't always been easy. Sometimes my initial beliefs have been incorrect. I've had to be open and humble enough to self-correct and have the strength to admit I was wrong. Other times I've had to conceal my beliefs to exist in an unsafe space or advance higher goals. About 15 years ago, I was here in the sanctuary listening to one of Reverend Kim's sermons. She spoke about Mother Teresa and her work with the poor of Calcutta. Reverend Kim referred to Mother Teresa's admonition not to turn away from those most in need, but instead to view such people as Christ in all of his distressing disguises. Now known as St. Teresa of Calcutta, she was canonized by the Vatican for purportedly curing a woman of an abdominal tumor. But for me, the real miracle were her transformational words that allowed this devoted secular Jew to understand Jesus, not as a man, but instead as a metaphor, a plea for devotion to the needs of humanity in all of its painful expressions. That homily made me recall a Sunday morning from the early 1990s when I was walking westward on Boylston Street with my friend Chris. As we were walking, we were engaged several times by homeless people asking for money. Each time, I didn't respond to them. I continued forward in conversation with my friend. But each time, Chris looked the person directly in the eye, smiled and said, good morning. Even though he didn't give them money, he consistently received a warm and friendly response. I think it's important, Chris said to me, to respond to them, to give them the same dignity of recognition as you would for anyone else who talked to you. Chris saw the holy in them. His example was a wake-up call for me to stop looking so much at my needs and comfort and to develop a greater awareness of the needs of others and the wholeness of our interconnected existence. It was another transcendent, holy moment from which I've never recovered. Where I grew up in suburban Washington, D.C., there was a community pool. It was surrounded by a high chain-link fence, and on warm days, the pool was a hive of activity. My friends and I longed to swim there, each time our parents drove past it with us, we silently stared through the car window at the gleeful swimmers. Intuitively, intuitively, we all knew without having to be told not to ask if we could go. And we never did. In the center of Montgomery, Alabama's Oak Park, there's a large, flat expanse of grass ringed by mature oak trees. Things are quiet there these days, the park has few visitors, but it wasn't always this way. 10 feet below the expanse of grass is the buried shell of what was once a large, dazzling swimming pool that could accommodate more than 1,000 people. Such elaborate pools were once commonplace across the US. Starting in the 1920s and expanded by WPA projects, by World War II, more than 2,000 such grand pools were built across the country. In pre-air-conditioned times, these places were the best way to beat the summer heat for everyone, except 
not everyone. You see, many of these pools were reserved for whites only. In the 1950s, the NAACP argued in courts on behalf of African Americans whose tax dollars partially paid for these resources, arguing they should be open to all. When courts began to order equal access to these public accommodations, many cities refused and shuttered the pools. Accordingly, effective January 1st, 1959, the City Council of Montgomery, Alabama chose to drain and bury the Grand Pool rather than share it. And this happened all across the country, from Alabama to Ohio to Washington State. It's a curiosity that so many white people decided to lose out on something they once valued, something they chose to destroy, a nice thing, rather than share it. In her book, The Some of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together, Heather McGee, a researcher and policy expert, recounts such historic events and asks the haunting question, why can't we have nice things? And she's not just talking about swimming pools of yesteryear. She's referring to high-quality, well-funded public schools, safe and reliable public transportation, health care for all, robust access to voting, and a safe water supply. As a nation, our roads, bridges, and water systems get a D-plus from the American Society of Civil Engineers. America, the country that 70 years ago built an interstate highway system and power grid that was the envy of the world, now a D-plus? What happened? And so I ask you, why can't Americans have nice things? Ms. McGee posits the root of the problem is in part due to the notion of a zero-sum game mindset that many Americans have been sold. For me to do better, you have to do worse. However, this contradicts the growth-minded spirit of America and how experts understand economics, that growth begets growth. We can all benefit when we stand together in solidarity. But if we act as it's me against you, we can all lose out on having nice things. But is this type of collaboration possible anymore? I think it is. Sometimes we have to take a look back in order to envision the possibility of a mutually beneficial shared future. Swope Park, Kansas City, Missouri. Just like in Montgomery in the early 1950s, Kansas City initially closed their pools when courts ordered integration. But the community came together and in 1954, a group of black and white showed up and swam together. And so the Grand Pool still stands in service. Through self-determination and solidarity, these citizens bet on the collective, and their investment exists for the benefit of everyone today. Upon entering junior high school, an older friend told me I should join an afternoon pro program, the Ecology Club. The Ecology Club is cool, he told me. I wasn't, but I joined anyway. Mrs. Metz taught us about the interdependent web of life in which we lived. Another holy moment in my young life. We'd go out into local streams, testing water quality and noting the wildlife. Today I recycle almost as a spiritual discipline, drive a hybrid car, have installed solar panels on my home, and during the pandemic, installed three beehives. 
All of this because of what this visionary teacher taught me almost 50 years ago. However, when I return home and drive past the streams that we once tested, they're all choked with tall grasses, barely flowing anymore. The fish, all gone. Phosphates in the runoff doomed them decades ago. So in 2015, when I first heard there was a problem with the water in Flint, Michigan, it got my attention. The city of Flint was in receivership, and as a maneuver to save money, the emergency manager and county officials changed the water supply from Lake Huron to the Flint River. They failed to apply corrosion inhibitors to the water, which resulted in lead from aging pipes leaching into the water supply, exposing nearly 100,000 residents to elevated lead levels. The citizens of Flint had a nice thing in their original safe water supply, but when the wholeness of their voices was removed from the conversation, it went away. My paternal great-grandmother's family is from Memphis, home of the blues. I long to go there and have a glimpse of what was once familiar to them. In 2021, across historically black Memphis neighborhoods, notes began to appear on front doors. A company building a petroleum pipeline was offering money for access to land. While some residents took the money, many others said no. In response, the company tried to sue residents on the basis of eminent domain, a right reserved for governments, not private businesses. Something you should know. Memphis is known for their good water. The water sits upon an enormous aquifer. Rainwater from thousands of years ago, before the time of man-made chemicals and pollutants, provides the residents some of the highest quality drinking water in the world. At 57 million gallons, it's enough to last over a thousand years. That is, barring an accident, an accident like the rupture of a petroleum pipeline. You see, in a case like this, pollution originating on the dark side of town would have devastating effects for all of Memphis. The largely white environmental coalition Protect Our Aquifer had gotten little traction from their efforts in the press to stop the pipeline. The black citizens hadn't gotten any further, appealing to elected officials. At a public hearing, when the pipeline company was asked why they decided to locate the pipeline through historically black neighborhoods, they accidentally said the quiet part out loud, responding, they were taking the path of least resistance. That's all that was needed for a cataract of resistance to emerge from across all of Memphis. And once the entire city came together, the plans for the pipeline were abandoned. Acting alone, neither side succeeded. Together, they prevailed to protect the aquifer. This, my friends, is the solidarity dividend. It's November 5th, 1974, Seabrook, Maryland. If discovering my self-determination was my introduction to the holy, today is my baptism. My mother is the officiant, and I am consecrated in the most unlikely of places, my elementary school assembly room. It's election day, and my mother has brought me to this familiar space that has been transformed into our local polling station.
The lunch tables have been folded aside and replaced by the magnificence of something I'd never seen before, voting booths. While I was raised without the pageantry of religious services, this secular exercise has all the drama and ritual of any sacred mass, and I'm mesmerized. Mom checks in at the front desk and they give her an IBM punch card. We wait our turn in line, gradually making our way to the front. Then mom hands the poll worker the punch card and they slip it into the voting booth slot. Mom carefully ushers me into the space and places my hand on the red handle and together we move it from left to right. The curtains close and time stops for everyone but us. A light from above glows down upon complex columns of names. Mom leans over and whispers to me, these are the names of the candidates. You pull the lever for the person you want to vote for like this. And this, she extends her index finger in awe. This is the Democratic Party ticket. That's the one we want. She lifts me up and together we extend our fingers, depress the lever, and almost magically the column of levers for the entire slate moves into place. That's it she says in a hushed voice, setting me down. Together we move the red handle from right to left, the curtains open, and we return to the world. As a person raised entirely in the secular world, this is one of the holiest moments of my life. My mother knew the importance of teaching me the sacred value of the vote. Mom knew our vote was our voice, and she intended to be heard. My parents were not trivial people. They paid attention and were well-informed because their families had suffered profound cruelty in the years before as a consequence of the politics of fear, division, and greed. Because of politics, mom's family suffered under the anti-Semitic conflagrations that swept through the pale of settlement in Eastern Europe at the turn of the last century. They lost homes, businesses, communities, rivers, and continents but found their safety and destiny in Toronto, Detroit, and Pittsburgh, where the families struggled and flourished. Because of politics, my father's family suffered under 400 years of slavery, 100 years of the scourge known as Jim Crow. He served in World War II in the Pacific Theater and told me of the proud day his ship returned home, sailing beneath the majesty of the Golden Gate Bridge. The men, standing on the ship's deck with tears unashamedly streaming down their faces. It was so good to be home again. You'd be hard-pressed to find someone more patriotic than my dad, but when he returned to civilian life, he didn't enjoy equity in housing, employment, or higher education, and it would be another 22 years before he could vote in a presidential election. My parents knew at a gut level the importance of needing to be aware and they were determined to oppress upon us the need to be active and informed participants in the shared communal gift of American democracy. For me, voting is the crown jewel of nice things. Not that long ago in Florida, the right to vote was permanently lost by anyone convicted of a felony, known as felony disenfranchisement. Neil Voltz is a conservative former congressional staffer who participated in the high-profile 2006 Abramoff scandal. After pleading guilty to criminal conspiracy and fulfilling his sentence, 
Neil found employment difficult to find. Transformed by the experience, but still conservative, he worked the night shift as a janitor and volunteered for organizations that embraced the culture of second chances. And by chance, he met Desmond Mead, an attorney whose goal was to dismantle felony disenfranchisement. Desmond, who previously served a drug felony sentence, had returned to his community where he obtained a college degree and then a law degree. Desmond, now a MacArthur Genius Award winner, was the progressive founder of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. Both men were deeply invested in their communities. Both men had served their sentences. Both men denied the right to vote in Florida. Still, Neil was conservative of progressive types. Desmond is dedicated to the principle of collaboration, saying, the minute I don't make an effort to understand my opposition's point of view, it makes it impossible for me to be in relationship with them. Desmond drew Neil into partnership by telling him, I don't have a monopoly on suffering, nor I do have a monopoly on solutions. In order to prevail, they needed each other. At the time, more than one and a half million Floridians were in a similar predicament. The origin of felony disenfranchisement has its roots in Jim Crow era laws. But by 2015, more whites, many of them conservative, were affected than blacks. With no workable solution from the State House, Desmond and Neal took their issue to the voters. Their ambitious plan, a constitutional amendment. Getting the amendment on the ballot require more than 766,000 registered voters to sign a petition. By definition, none of the signers could be affected. If successful, the question would be put to the electorate requiring a 60% supermajority. Only a bipartisan effort would be successful. So they set to work across every county, every community, every grocery store in the state approaching voters of all backgrounds. The radical approach was to ask voters, has anyone you love ever made a mistake? And it worked. On November 6, 2018, the amendment was adopted, garnishing almost 65% of the votes. A million more voters voted for the amendment than voted for governor on the same ballot. How? How in this era of political division did a bipartisan supermajority create this nice thing? Rather than focus on what divides us, they focused on a message of love, forgiveness, redemption, and restoration. Again, my friends, this is the solidarity dividend. It's funny, that community pool that I told you about, it's never been entirely clear to me if we were forbidden to swim there, or if we were just very much unwelcome. I guess it shouldn't matter anymore, it's been so long. 20 years after I moved away, I returned home to visit my mom, and I drove past the pool. It looked so puny, so ordinary, insignificant, not worthy enough, not nice enough to get worked up over but it still bothered me. And last year when I drove past it again, there was nothing but a wide open field. The pool, the fence, the bathhouse, even the snack shop, all gone. 
everything about it had vanished except the pain. I expect the way things change so quickly, I'm probably the only one who even thinks about that pool anymore. In a few years, maybe enough new people have moved in that no one will ever remember anything that space was other than an open field. But I want you to know, while the community may have forgotten what happened at that swimming pool, I'll never forget what that swimming pool did to our community. This is an extraordinary time of opportunity for all of us to make a difference. But we can't do it single-handedly. I can recycle and put up solar panels, but I alone can't stop global warming. I can teach and mentor students, but I alone can't create well-funded, high-quality schools. I can vote in every election, but I alone can't build a movement that is responsive to the needs of everyday people across the nation. These things can only be done when we come together as a collective. We can have nice things, but in order to have them, we're going to have to build a space where we can stand together, swim together, march together, and vote together. We're going to have to summon the self-determination to sow a culture of wholeness to reap the solidarity dividend. This has been a conversation about swimming pools, and this has also very much not been a conversation about swimming pools. You know, I'm starting to think that if people from the poor side and rich side of Memphis were able to protect their water supply, if the people of Kansas City could protect their swimming pool, if the people in Kansas could come together to protect reproductive choice, if the people of Florida from across the political spectrum could restore voting rights to those who have erred in a campaign based on love and redemption, each of us and all of us through workful hope and solidarity might, just might, be able to give America another chance. A chance to step back from the dangerous precipice onto which we've strayed. My beloved spiritual companions, what I know after seeking and seeing the holy over these many years is that each of you and all of you are worthy and deserving of having nice things. Perhaps by sheer collective self-determination and by recognizing that we all live under the same sky, drink from the same well are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, clothed in a single garment of destiny, perhaps, just perhaps, we'll get to that promised land together. Amen. And now for our benediction, I invite you to put your hands over your heart and namaste. I bow to the divine in you. Today we end with the words from Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly 
affects all indirectly. My beloved spiritual companions, when we find the power and grace to stand together, to march together, to vote together, and swim in the great river of life together, then we'll, we shall truly all be free. Let us keep this faith, beloveds, and pass it on. The service begins when this service ends. Bless your hearts. You are loved. visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace.